Welcome back, everyone. Thank God it's Friday, August 26, 2022. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today, we've got Phil Kirpin on again from AmericanCommitment.org. Phil, good friend of the show and of mine. And he joins us to talk about two different issues. Uh, we were originally going to start out talking about how Democrats are going to raid Medicare to pay for Obamacare again in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, this is about the Medicare drug pricing regime that the Inflation Reduction Act produces and how this is actually going to make things worse and it's going to sap money that is supposed to be going elsewhere. But we end up getting first ahead of ourselves and started talking about the student loan bailout, the basically the academia bailout. And Phil Kirpin reminds us that there's an Obama conne Obamacare connection there too. So you're definitely going to want to stay tuned for that. Top stories today that we're working on. Jerome Powell declared war on inflation today. He says it's going to be painful. It's got to get done. And the Fed is not going to let up until price, uh, until price increases uh, zero out completely, which means that we're going to have a lot more rate increases. Uh, the PCE index number came out today, 6.3%. That's down from 6.8% last month, year on year. But that's only because we had a one-month plateau or really drop in uh, gas prices. So you see a, a, a drop in energy prices, which is translated into this uh, half percentage point drop from the previous year, uh, previous month's year on year. But that's due to falling demand for gas, which is not a good sign economically. This is not because we had a bunch more supply coming on. It's because gas sales fell, not just in price terms, but in real terms. Demand dropped. It's been dropping since the second quarter. Not coincidentally, so has GDP, as we learned this week again from the BEA, whose uh, intermediate or inter interim, advance, uh, interim report on GDP shows that GDP declined 0.6%, down from an initial estimate of minus 0.9%, but that's because the trade gap was a little wider and definitely still weirder. If you take out that trade gap, if you if you zero out the trade imbalance, which was positive, which is almost never the case, uh, you end up with a GDP in the second quarter annualized to around minus 2.2%. Um, so Jerome Powell's looking at stagflation. And that's the reason why he declared war this morning on inflation and clearly is unimpressed with Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, clearly is even less impressed with the fact that Joe Biden now wants to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on that bailout of academia, this trickle-down theory that somehow spending $500 billion is going to generate economic activity by uh, alleviating the debt burden on professionals throughout the United States. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has been pushing this. I have a VIP uh, column on another one of Elizabeth Warren's arguments today, which is that uh, the price of college has gone up so fast that the government has to intervene. These these uh, people who are in debt can't pay it back because the price has gone up too much. Well, why might that be? <laughs> well, I have a few theories on that. First off, her math is bad, so you're going to have to struggle through that. But the reason why tuitions have gone up uh, about four times in real dollars since uh, 1964 is because in 1965, the government uh, passed the uh, first of its student loan programs, which was initially just targeted at disadvantaged students, but is, was expanded within about 25 years to 
anybody who wanted to take out loans. And what that did was it generated a huge amount of demand, which drove prices up. And now we're in a situation where the prices, the cost of a, a college education in this inflated tuition market no longer support the outcome. It's a bad investment. Basically, students are getting defrauded <laughs> is what the issue is here. And if this was taking place at, at, at for-profit uh, colleges and universities, Elizabeth Warren would be leading the charge to throw the people behind them in jail. Instead here, she's leading the charge for a bailout for the not-for-profit uh, not uh, higher education institutions that are foisting this fraud on their students. I mean, when thousands of Lawrence Tribe's Harvard graduates can't make enough money to cover their student loans, according to him, there's definitely a problem. <laughs> I mean, this is Harvard we're talking about. The, the guilt-edged diploma that, that is the, you know, sine qua non of higher education and the buying power that that buys does not cover the cost of its education. That's a fraud. That's a fraud, and it's a fraud that's created by government inflating the tuition market. And it's, it's high time that we dismantle that program and return the uh, universities and colleges back to a market equilibrium where they have to actually uh, meter tuition based on the value of their education. That's not happening because the government's in interfering in that calculation and has been for about the last 57 years, uh, and especially over the last 30 years. Anyway, that's my VIP column today. You should check that out. Lots of other stuff coming up, too, or it's already up at hot air. Um, John Fetterman is spending 35000 on private schools for his kids while refusing, uh, uh, while not supporting or, or opposing school vouchers. Uh, Including, and this is a really interesting catch by the Washington Free Beacon. I'm assuming that this is oppo research that got fed to them, but that's fine. A lot of stuff gets out that way. Because uh, John Fetterman was uh, posing as a public school parent uh, as late as May of this year when he sent out a tweet on May 4th that says, American history must be taught in America's public schools. The good, the bad, and the horrific. We can't succumb to the Fox News and Newsmax lies. That's what Giselle Fetterman and I want for our kids. Well, if that's what they want for their kids, then why aren't their kids in public schools? They're not. They're in private schools. They're actually in a very expensive private school. Very nice private school. Very good private school. Um, and um, uh, the... Um, Again, this is, I'll say, Winchester Thurston School in Pittsburgh. The Winchester Thurston School in Pittsburgh is rated as Pennsylvania's 11th best private school in, this, in the entire state. And um, it has some diversity issues, too, as the, as the Free Beacon points out. So great, um, uh, great topic there. Um, all of a sudden, Mehmet Oz's crudité video doesn't look quite as uh, appetizing. I'd say. And Fetterman's veggie tray posing is just that. This is a guy who is a collectivist in all other issues and is thoroughly supportive of the public school monopoly, except when it comes to his own kids. I don't think Pennsylvanians are going to cotton to that too much. We'll see. But I think that that might be a bit of an issue. There's an important ruling in Texas, by the way, also on the Second Amendment. It's at the federal district court level, so it's not precedential yet. But... It's one of the first um, cases to be decided after Bruin, and I think it's very interesting for that, but also interesting 
um, on the notion that you can limit civil rights based on the age of American adults. Um, this particular judge completely disagreed. I explain why I think that that's the right call and why I think that public policy tilted in that direction is was always a bad idea, even before Bruin, uh, but now after Bruin is even more clearly so. Anyway, stay tuned next. Phil Kirpin coming up from AmericanCommitment.org. We've got a great conversation, and unlike yesterday's, doesn't have a whole bunch of audio problems. I apologize for not being able to publish the um, great conversation I had with Dwayne Patterson yesterday. It was just really unlistenable, and we didn't catch that until well after the recording had been completed. So my apologies for that. But we do have Phil Kirpin today, and I hope you're going to enjoy it. Have a great weekend, folks, and don't miss a minute of the Ed Morrissey Show podcasts. Welcome back, everyone, to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me today is Phil Kirpin of AmericanCommitment.org, at Kirpin, K-E-R-P-E-N, on Twitter. We're going to talk about a couple of different things. Originally, when, you know, we talk to Phil all the time. It's great talking. By the way, Phil, welcome back. It's always great talking to you. It's it's always a pleasure. So AmericanCommitment.org is where Phil's at. And we were originally going to talk about something he wrote at AmericanCommitment.org about Democrats wanting to raid Medicare to pay for Obamacare again, which we're going to talk about first. But we're going to leave some space to talk about this uh Bailout of academia, because this is exactly what this is, what Joe Biden is trying to do. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to harangue Phil Kirpin, who is uh, is harangable on this because he there's there's actually an Obamacare connection on that one, too, because uh, when they first had the nationalization of student lending was in the sidecar bill. Remember, they did the two. That's right. Obamacare. It was the Healthcare and Education Reconciliation Act was the sidecar bill to get around Scott Brown's win in Massachusetts. And one of the pay-fors, one of the ways they were paying for Obamacare in that bill is that they claimed nationalizing student lending would increase money to the Treasury because now they'd make all the interest instead of the private lenders. And so this was supposedly going to make money for the government. And, you know, now we're here 12 years later and it's probably going to lose a trillion dollars or whatever it ends up being. You know, I was looking I was looking at this. I guess we'll talk about this first and we'll get to the we'll get to the other thing. Um, but I was looking into this because I just as as we're recording this, I just posted a lengthy uh, look at this uh, student loan forgiveness plan. And, you know, when Obama nationalized or all but nationalized the student loan program, you're right. I mean, it was on the basis of, well, we can do it better. The all the, the problems with the student lending is all about the evil private bar, um, bar, uh, lenders, Obama argued. And so they nationalized it. I'd forgotten it was actually the sidecar to Obamacare, which, you know, <laughs> in retrospect, just makes, a pay for. It was supposed a pay to for. Pay. It was supposed to make money. So I went back and looked at my notes on this, you know, because the nice thing about blogging is that you just go back and do a search on the uh, admin side. You can find out anything that you've been writing. And by 2015, this program was in the hole by $22 billion, which was a larger, which was a larger hole than the EPA's budget and the and Department of the Interior's budget put together. Right. So it only took five. It only took five years between for them to go from it's going to raise sixty billion dollars for taxpayers to we've already lost twenty five billion. Right. So exactly. Eighty five billion dollars in five years, and you know here we are another seven years later, and they're basically saying half of these loans don't need to be paid back. No problem. Enjoy. Right. 
right. turning it into a gift after the fact. And, uh, you know, the word forgiveness is extremely deceptive because it's not like it's not like you can snap your fingers and it's gone. The debt's gone and no one pays for it. The money was spent. The money was borrowed when it was spent or it was taxed when it was spent. And if it doesn't get paid back, then it has to be replaced in some form or fashion, either with higher taxes or with inflation. But I mean, it doesn't, the, the resources were spent when they went to the school. Exactly. There's no free lunch. Yeah. As, Ro- as Robert Heinlein said, Tan Stoffel, right? There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. And, uh, and, and this is, it, this has been a free lunch for academia though, for decades. Even oh, when well, was- they, can raise, they can raise tuition through, especially under this latest version, you know, if this survives. And by the way, I actually think that the media is doing a huge disservice when they treat this as a fait accompli, because I do think this will be yeah. litigated and it may be struck down. And so it's not certain that this will survive judicial review in my judgment. Um, but if, if he actually does uh, what he's announced they're going to do, it's not just the fact that a lot of existing loans are being bailed out, but on a going forward basis, he says income-based repayment is going to be just 5% of disposable income. And uh, even if the payment is zero, the way they're setting the threshold, no interest will accrue. And then at the end of uh, 10 years, if you're under a $12,000 balance or 20 years, if you're above that, you, you, it gets absolved. The, the whole loan's gone. And so on a going forward basis, uh, if you're a university, you can charge essentially unlimited tuition. You could say our new tuition is $200,000 a year, but don't worry because you're only going to have to pay 5% of your income and then the loan will be gone. So it's like a, not a real debt for you. It's notional. Taxpayers are going to pay for it, not you. And so they, they're essentially saying on a going forward basis that any increase in tuition will be covered by taxpayers. That and, and what happens when you send that signal to universities? And they're probably, you know, they're getting ready to, if we think it's expensive now, they're getting, probably getting ready to double it again. That's exactly what they're going to do because there's no, you know, there, there's no disincentives against it. We are removing the incentives for, for uh, market-based equilibrium intuition. And, you know, the thing that really struck me and the reason why I ended up writing about this, Washington, the Washington Post editorial board, by the way, thinks this is a terrible idea, which, you know, kudos to them. I'm a little surprised, but kudos to them. But I started thinking about it about the time that Lawrence Tribe said thousands of his graduates are going to be happy that they're, they're going to benefit from this. And I'm thinking to myself, Phil, man, if, if we have a program that even Harvard graduates can't earn enough money to pay back, that program is an abject failure and should be shut down entirely. We should end student loans, uh, student, you know, student tuition loans, and and force colleges and universities to compete on the basis of price in an in an even market. Uh, that would probably solve a lot of the problems here. And I, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think that I think that what we should have. It- there's actually there's actually bipartisan legislation that's pretty good, not perfect on this that uh, Dick Durbin and John Cornyn put in last year. But I think that what you should do is um, you should create circumstances in which student loans can be discharged in bankruptcies, which are very yeah. very difficult to do now. Uh, you should probably have something like a ten year waiting period so people don't do it right away when they're poor right after school. But if you know somebody hits a rough patch in life, they can't make their payments and they need to go bankrupt. You know, the whole idea of bankruptcy is you should be able to get a clean slate. So I think that with guardrails, uh, we should allow for discharge and bankruptcy. But and this is the crucial point, uh, a significant portion should need to be uh, a, a significant portion of the discharge debts 
should uh, fall on the universities yes. in those bankruptcies. So if someone does go bankrupt and they end up getting a discharge, you know, something like half or a quarter, whatever, you know, you could debate the exact amount. The university should have to pay that to the treasury. Uh, for their culpability in not setting someone up to succeed in life. And I think that if we did that, um, we, we would align, we would fix a lot of the problems of the messed up incentives that we have right now. Well, I think that that's true. And I mean, if, if I think if I'm a Republican, and I'm, uh, which I'm not, and if I was going to be in Congress, which I'm not, and <laughs> we had the majority, which is still debatable, I guess, I would start looking at taxing endowments. Uh, yeah. To pay for to pay for this program and see how see how long academia. Uh, uh, it was a really small, teeny tiny endowment tax in the Trump tax bill. So there, it does exist now for the first time, but it applies to very few and it's very small. Uh, but that that door's been uh, kicked open just a tiny bit, and I agree with you. That's something that they should be they should look at being a lot more aggressive uh, with because if we're so massively subsidizing uh, students to go to these institutions. And yet they're accumulating these enormous endowments. Um, it, it seems only reasonable to say that uh, they ought to be they ought to be paying uh, some of that in, in uh, you know an excise tax on, their, on those endowments. And uh, I think that's a huge political winner too. I mean, you know, how do you, you know, how do you, I mean, in a campaign context, how do you argue against you know taxing Harvard's endowment? I mean, you can't. Which is fifty three billion dollars, by the way. Their endowment yeah, right yeah, now is fifty three billion dollars. They have some very good investment people there. Yeah. If you can. Which is fine if they weren't sitting there, you know, uh, you know, beating the drums for federal subsidies for tuition to their school. I mean, anyway, the Larry Tribe thing, you know, I, I was thinking about this when I saw that tweet. I'm like, you know, how many Harvard law grads have low enough incomes to qualify for this? Even if you have a spouse who doesn't work, you'd have to be under two hundred fifty thousand dollars. And I'm like, oh, it's it's all the government employees. That's who he's talking about. Right. Right. Yeah, that's who he's talking about. Which, by the way, there's already you know probably a lot of them working at the White House too. Or I would imagine at least a couple of them are working at the White House, but um, but there's already a public service loan forgiveness program. It existed prior to this. It, you know, you you do X number of years in some sort of public service job, like social, you know, social work or something like that, and you can qualify for some level of loan forgiveness for that's student loan forgiveness. Of, that's another aspect of this. You know, you know. One of the, you know, a lot of the one of the obvious things to conservatives is to say how unfair this is to people who paid their own way or didn't take out loans or didn't go to college or, you know, had loans and managed to pay them off responsibly. But, you know, there's another class of people who, you know, maybe they went into the military because they wanted to get GI Bill or maybe they went into one of these professions that has a special program at the state or federal level that pays for that. And you're basically telling all those people, you know. Whatever decisions you made, whatever you sacrifices you made to qualify for that specific program, don't matter because now everyone's going to get off the hook, and you know that's another unfairness to this also. Well, yes. Um, well, there's a lot of different unfairnesses of this. Um, the 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 financial impact of the inflationary uh, wave that it's going to generate is going to hammer the people who don't have the same type of disposable the level of disposable income as the people who are going to get the debt forgiveness in the first place. Um, I mean, the Elizabeth Warren argument yesterday, I was on a, I, I was on Dwayne's, uh, Dwayne Patterson's after show, right on Wednesday night. And he played that clip for me. <laughs> and the first thing I said, I don't know if you saw the clip. She was on CNN talking to, uh, I think it was Bianca Goladriga, um, about this. And the first thing I said was, 
She's arguing trickle-down economics. Since when does Elizabeth Warren believe in trickle-down economics? The argument was, well, when you, you know, when you forgive this level of um uh, of debt, well then they that money, that's money that they can use in the economy and that will make everybody, you know, that makes everybody better because there's more economic activity that's going on. <laughs> it's like this is the trickle-down economics. It, it it first off progressives view of trickle-down economics is fundamentally flawed, but this is precisely what they're arguing against. In any other context, they would call this trickle-down economics, a benefit going to the wealthier. They've got and, a big problem. They've got a big problem. Nothing, none of their actual you know, policy beliefs are consistent with what they're doing. But this is just about rewarding a constituency. It's yes, it is. And so they've, they've decided to do something for political reasons. And then they have to like backfit a policy rationale for it, but it doesn't really fit for the simple reason uh, that people who go to college tend to be higher income than people who don't. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to that. Some of the most successful people in the country, Bill Gates and whoever, that kind of thing. But uh, as a class, by and large, you're talking about people who are higher income getting a benefit that is necessarily at the cost of people who are lower income because, uh, you know, the cost of paying for it is spread over the entire economy. And I don't think it's going to be in higher taxes because we see how this government operates. You know, everything just sort of goes on the national credit card. The Federal Reserve prints the money to buy the bonds. And so it's it, it's being monetized. And this is sort of and, and it comes at a really bad time, too, because, you know, we had this spectacle over the last couple of years, you know, since COVID started of the federal government spending an extra five or six trillion dollars with 90 percent of it being essentially printed money, being Federal Reserve monetization. Um, and of course, we had this huge bulge of inflation as a consequence of that. And we're we're starting to see it come down finally, because, you know, after after all of that money gets created, it's sort of a one time event. You should come back to something like trend uh, inflation, and so we're finally starting to see some easing of these inflationary pressures because we, we've because they stopped massively right. adding more money, and then 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 what happens? They say, okay, well now we can now we can do a five hundred billion dollar uh, you know in debt bailout, student loan bailout, and you know according to the new theory of the Constitution, you don't even need a vote in Congress to do it. Yeah, so well, I that's think- a whole other thing too. I mean, this and the Washington Post, to its credit, also highlights this, that this is not legal. Yeah. Well, I think what they're hoping is that nobody with standing will sue them. And, you know, it's um, it's it's a, one of the things about giving things to people as opposed to taking things from people is the people who are injured by it are much more difficult to identify in the sort of concrete way that you need to in order to get standing in a court of law. I think the um, the best positioned potential plaintiffs to challenge this are the loan servicing companies, uh, because they get, I think, 1% of the loans as the fee for doing servicing, the processing, and so forth. So they stand right. to lose a lot if a lot of the loans are discharged. But, you know, what loan servicing company is willing to sue the government that their entire business depends on? And it's sort of a, uh, you know, it would take it would take an awful lot of guts, I think, and to do that. And so I don't think the private sector ones are likely to, uh, which is why I think you know, if there's going to be a lawsuit, the most likely one might be uh, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, Mohila, which is one of the largest servicers and also happens to be uh, an agency of the state of Missouri, which, of course, is a Republican state. And so maybe if the uh, governor and AG there take a look at it, uh, that could be the plaintiff in a lawsuit. But it's not really clear 
you know, who's going to be able to challenge this and get standing. I do think that if someone, if someone does, they have a very, very good chance of winning because if you read the legal memo that this administration put out, they don't even mention the major questions doctrine from West Virginia versus EPA. Right. They don't even mention the eviction moratorium. They just have an analysis of a bunch of old laws that they say, you know, gives the secretary of education this authority. But we have all these very recent cases saying, you know, you can't discover some huge new program in some old authority. Congress has to be very clear that they want it. And so I think the Supreme Court is going to get this case if if it gets that far and basically say, you know, what did we just tell you in West Virginia versus EPA? You can't conjure a vast new government program out of dusty old, you know, code books. They, we, they, they, I think it should be a pretty clear uh, 6-3 decision if it does get there. The question is, you know, will anyone actually sue who, who can survive standing? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering, too, if, you know, maybe um, a minority caucus in Congress would have standing to, to bring a lawsuit. Yeah. It's I'm tough. not sure. Legislators standing courts don't like that. They don't like taxpayer standing. Um, yep. One possibility might be that a bunch of states uh, could sue on the theory that uh, that their state supported educational institutions are disadvantaged because the the whole uh, you know the whole reason they massively subsidize them with appropriations is so that they can be less expensive than the private universities. And now the value of that's destroyed because all the people who went to the private universities don't have to pay it back. So that could be one theory that I've seen advanced. And uh, the other possibility could be a school like Hillsdale that never took any federal funds, never participated in any of these programs, suing and saying, you know, we, we didn't participate in any of these programs uh, because we didn't want our students to be saddled with these debts. And now uh, you know, the debts are being forgiven. So that could also be a potential theory. But I really think the servicers have the best argument. Uh, you know, they're directly losing a lot of business as a consequence of this. And so I'm hoping that, that one of them will sue. Yep. Well, we'll see. I'm sure that there are lawyers working 24 seven. Some genius always comes up with something you never thought of. You know, so yeah, I, I mean, the, the the, the idea that you can do something illegal and just hope that nobody figures out how to sue you, that doesn't usually work out well. Thankfully, does not usually work out very well, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep that in mind. We got to get to your piece, though. Democrats want to raid Medicare to pay for Obamacare again. <laughs> They're already raiding the program that they used to pay for Obamacare, yeah, which uh, we just got done discussing. Yeah, this is the Mansion Bill, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Although, by the way, officially they removed the name Inflation Reduction Act. And so the official name of the bill is like an act to provide for reconciliation under whatever resolution 14 or something so but yeah. no one's ever going to refer to a bill as that so no you know no. it's kind of funny right because yeah it was built back better in the house and then it was inflation reduction act in the senate and then both those names were so embarrassingly stupid that they ended up passing it with no name and it's kind of anyway but <laughs> the 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 spending side of that bill it basically does two big things it massively subsidizes green energy and uh, and electric vehicles and the whole Green New Deal and all that kind of stuff, by the way, including $350 billion in new loans and loan guarantees, which carry a zero cost in the CBO score. But as we have just learned, sometimes loans don't get paid back. So yeah, that, yeah. That good timing on that one. Big, that could be a source of additional large losses 
that are not reflected in the official score. But the other thing that it pays for is a a, a three-year extension in the supersized Obamacare subsidies that were put in on an emergency basis during COVID. And uh, these subsidies, the original Obamacare went up to 400% of the federal poverty level, the subsidies. Uh, the new supersized subsidies have no have no income-based limit in terms of the federal poverty level. So now it's, you know, it's, it's like what I think it's eight or 9% of your income. And if that's what premiums call, if the premiums cost more than that, taxpayers pick up the rest, even if you're a wealthy person. And so you've got, you have very, you have people making five, six, 700% 700% of the poverty level, making $150,000 a year. If they're in a place like Massachusetts or someplace with very high premiums, they're going to qualify for subsidies. <laughs> and so they've basically taken the, the lid off of Obamacare subsidies. Um, and, you know, and, and that also, by the way, um, because, because of the way it's set up, you know, it basically tells the insurance companies any increase in the premiums is not going to be paid by your customers. It's going to be right, free money right. to them that it's going to come directly from the U.S. Treasury. And so we've got this problem. It's always been there in Obamacare because most of the people who qualify, most of the people who buy it are the people who get subsidies because there's not much value to it at full price. Um, and so we've, we've always had this problem, but they're making it much, much worse uh, by raising the, the roof. And you know, the insurance industry, it's amazing they were able to do this. Um, you know, they basically didn't cut premiums for the two years during COVID where nobody was going to the doctor or hospital, their claims went through the floor and they didn't cut premiums and they somehow got away with it. I guess they're going to send out some rebates or something, but uh, they essentially got away with, with avoiding cutting. And so they had massive profits uh, the last couple of years. And now as people are finally starting to go back to the doctor, go back to the hospital utilization, it's not quite back to normal, but it's getting closer to normal. They're saying, oh, my God, uh, utilization is up so much. Claims are up so much from last year. We have to have huge premium increases. And somehow Congress, either in their complicity or their stupidity, they don't say, like, guys, it's coming back after a collapse. Right. The increase is from, you know, it's from a huge decrease. They don't say that. So what they say is, oh, my God, we've got to run to extend subsidies or else people are going to be hammered by these premium increases. It's going to be terrible. And so they rush to get this done. And, you know, they use their favorite pay fors in this bill. Uh, they've got the the IRS supersizing, which I'm sure you've talked about. Oh, yeah. they've, they've got the, uh, the this tax on uh, financial statement income. And but the third one uh, of the three big pay fors is this Medicare price control provision which essentially uh, they use the word negotiation because it pulls well, but it's not negotiation. It's the secretary setting the price because if the company doesn't accept the secretary's price, uh, they get taxed 95% of their total gross sales of that product. And you can't even deduct that tax from your corporate income taxes. So the projected revenue from that tax is zero because no company would ever say no. And you know, you kind of you look at this and you say, well, what's the point? Why don't they just say the secretary shall set the price? Well, they don't say the secretary shall set the price because they want to go out on TV and in the uh, articles from the adoring media and so forth. They want to say, we're having Medicare negotiate. It's negotiations to save you lots of money. Uh, but really, it's a price control. And when you use a price control, uh, we've seen this in any market it's ever been tried. And there are only three things that can happen. You, you either get shortages, you get a reduction in quality or you get black market activity, or you get some combination of the three. And uh, what I think we're going to see if this actually takes effect, the effective date is 2026. Uh, so right. I think the drug companies may stop it from ever happening, and it just becomes a fake pay for, and 
it goes, you know, the extra money on the deficit like usual. But assuming that it actually takes effect, um, the effect would almost certainly be a lot fewer drugs being developed because you're taking, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars directly out of that industry. And, you know, that would harm, that would grievously harm seniors. I mean, this idea uh, that you could turn this into a positive, that you're using Medicare drug spending as a piggy bank for, you know, Green New Deal and, uh, and, and Obamacare subsidies, I don't know how it passes the laugh test. You can't spend $300 billion less on Medicare prescription drugs, not through any reform or efficiency, but just by government price setting and not harm uh, the recipients that are in that program, which is which is one of the reasons why, if I had to guess, I'd say it never actually happened. <laughs> right. Four years they On the other it. hand, though, Phil, I mean, this is something that they've hammered for years and years and years, that they want the negotiation option for uh, Medicare. The negotiation's fine if it were a real negotiation. But, you know, the thing is, CBO has been asked this question about a million times over the years. Like, would the secretary negotiating the price of drugs lower the price? And they say no, because the the individual plans, the Medicare Part D plans, are already very aggressive in their negotiations. Right. It's not like the secretary is such a better negotiator that, that uh, you know he can get a better price than the private plans do. So it's not the negotiations that are saving money. I have no problem with negotiation. It's the price setting. Right. It's the price setting that that forcibly extracts money from the industry. Uh, but the other thing is like the way they wrote there, but there are other drug provisions here that are just perverse, that are just going to blatantly have the opposite effect of what they claim. So for instance, they've got this inflation cap. You can't increase the price of drugs in a year more than the inflation rate. Well, drug prices have been going up about two and a half percent a year. Inflation's been about eight and a half. So if the government now says from you know going forward, there's a cap, you're not going to be allowed on an annual basis to increase more than the price of inflation. I think all the manufacturers will immediately go to the maximum. So they'll actually right. raise their prices more than they have been because they know they won't have the flexibility in the future to set their prices based on market conditions. And they'll know all of their competitors are looking at the same situation, the same incentives, the same outcome. And so I actually think you're going to get bigger price increases by putting a cap on because the cap is higher than where prices are running right now. And the other thing is you're going to get much higher launch prices for new drugs because right. they don't control the launch price. So if you if you say you can launch at any price you want, but then after that, you can only increase annually by inflation. New drugs are going to come to market at some insane price, and then they're going to. And 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 the but the other thing, the other thing too is the price control only applies to the fifteen drugs that Medicare spends the most on. So now you're telling manufacturers like, okay, so you want to sell a lot, but don't sell too much because you don't want to get put into the price control. And so now they've got an incentive to maybe price their drugs higher, not just because the launch price is the last time you get to set your price, but also because if you make the drug more expensive than the revenue maximizing point to you know maybe make a little less, but keep your total sales lower, you can avoid being in that 15 that are subject to the price control. So right. I actually think that uh, for most drugs that are not subject to the price control, the prices are actually going to go up under this regime. Well, I think so too. And I think it's the George Clooney up in the air incentive. Do you ever watch? You ever watch the movie Up in the Air with George Clooney? I have, but I don't know where you're going. Oh uh, yeah, because I'm I, I like to go in obscure directions, Phil. You know me. Um, so um, what's her name? And I can't think of the actress's name. She's really good in it too. Um, oh golly. Anyway, the the, the one that plays Natalie Keener, the um, uh, the, his his protege while they're out on the road. She comes upon him while he's just about to sit down to dinner, and he's got three big plates of food in front of him. And she says, hungry much? And he says, 
our um, reimbursement plan allows me $40 for dinner. And I, I spend every dollar of it because I want to maximize my miles. <laughs> and I think that this is, I think the drug companies are going to look. They hit the they're going to hit yeah, the maximum. They're going to maximize their miles because the miles are the goal. Um, <laughs> my apologies to George Clooney and to up in the air, which is a, a really good film actually. Um, but, uh, but I mean, that's what happens. And I've actually seen this on, on the inside of, you know, corporate America too, where people say, oh, well, I'm allowed $25 for dinner. So every dinner I eat is $25. <laughs> I get $15 for breakfast. So every, every breakfast I eat is $15. <laughs> I, I work for a company that said, don't submit, don't submit receipts unless you're over the limit. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. so well, what do you, you do? Know. Every, every, you're right under, right under. <laughs> Yeah, twenty four ninety nine, fourteen ninety nine. You know, I mean, it's it's all nonsense. They spent three bucks on a burger and fries. This is you know thirty years ago. Three bucks on a burger and fries, and they're they're marking down fifteen bucks. Um, yeah, I mean that, those types of those types of incentives, perverse incentives, create dishonesty, create waste, and create extra cost. And that's exactly what I think you're going to see. And that's what you're talking about here in your piece at AmericanCommitment.org. Yeah, I mean, I think they're. Uh, I, I in the piece, I mostly just focus on the uh, on the price control, uh, the, you know, the yeah. negotiation on the fifteen big drugs, not so much some of these other things, the inflation caps and so forth. But I mean, the bottom line is, uh, if they get away with this without much blowback, if you know AARP, which is basically an auxiliary arm of United Health, makes seven hundred fifty million dollars a year from them, and therefore is out promoting this stuff, if they can sell the public on this being a good thing. Uh, that you can take hundreds of billions out of prescription drug spending whenever you want to pay for another government spending bill. We're going to get more of it. We're going to see this as their go-to. Uh, Peter Welch, the congressman from Vermont, is going to be moving into the Senate. He had a quote, like he actually used the word slippery slope like a good thing. He's like, yeah, we only got 15 drugs, but this is the slippery slope. We're going to come back and we're going to get more and we can do this. We can now use so, I mean, this is the this is now the game plan for them when they need to pay for for some big government spending bill to say, you know, people don't like the pharmaceutical companies. We'll take it out of them. And the problem with that is, you know, drugs are I know as I'm, not everyone agrees with this right now with COVID. And so every, but drugs are a good thing. Prescription drugs, cures for diseases, medicines. It's a good thing. You want to incentivize more of them. We want to we want to cure Alzheimer's. We want to cure Parkinson's. We want better cancer treatments. Uh, you've got to have the incentives for those things right. And I saw one analysis analysis from Thomas Phillipson from the University of Chicago, who was a former Trump administration economist. Um, he did an analysis. He has a model on how much money uh, restrictions on drug pricing pull out of R&D in the private sector of uh, the pharmaceutical industry. And he's got this bill scored as something like five or $600 billion reduction over the next 20 years. And, you know, for cancer drugs in particular, he's got it at the, the reduction in private sector R&D spending on cancer drugs from this bill will be nine times what the increase was of government funding for cancer under Biden's moonshot. Yep. So the private sector R&D is so big that if you mess up the incentives, that's much worse than anything government can make up for with its with its own grant funding and so forth. And so it really is going to have a big negative impact um, if these provisions take effect as written. Now, as I said, being the cynic that I am and pharma now having four years to prevent something that's going to cost them hundreds of billions of dollars, I think they'll buy every politician in town to prevent it from happening. But, you know, we'll see. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting, right? You put it up as 2026. 
and you we'll, we'll see. That's the reason why. It's, that's the reason why they put it out to twenty twenty six too. Well, sure, because now they now you know now their bill was paid for. It reduced the deficit. It reduced inflation. Now they change their mind in a couple of years. They'll get to collect all the campaign contributions in the interim. And you know who will even remember? But I, uh, you know, if we're really being cynical, well, that's the thing about you and me, Phil. We've seen a lot, so we're cynical. And I know that if if they were serious about it, it would have been in place next year. They're not serious about it. They kicked it down about four years, three, four years, so that people could forget about it and they could quietly get rid of it. So I agree with you. And even that would still be a better outcome than if they actually try to impose it. So we'll, you know, that's the, that's a sad part of this. But even sadder is we're kind of out of time here. Phil Kirpin from AmericanCommitment.org at Kirpin. Is there any other place that we need to uh, be looking for you? Yeah. Uh, the other thing I do is I do a daily newsletter with John Fund and Steve Moore. If people want to get that, it's totally free. Committee to UnleashProsperity.com for that. There you go. John Fund, great guy, by the way. I got to get him back on here. So give John my best. I I, I kind of miss him on the podcast. We got to do another podcast with him soon. I will. Uh, I'll mention it. <laughs> okay. Well, I could probably mention it to him too. We follow each other on Twitter. So, you know, that's it. And we, we know each other's emails. I should probably just, I should handle my own business, Phil. <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? I think what I want really is a is a bailout. I need a John Fund bailout fund is what I need. Very good. <laughs> All right. Hi, right, Dad. Phil Kirpin, thank you so much. We will talk to you again soon. All right. Have a good one. All right, folks. Stay tuned for just a little bit more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up right next. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Anthony Fauci has announced his departure from his role with the NIH and, most importantly, as Joe Biden's chief medical advisor. By December, Fauci will depart these positions after 38 years in government. It's welcome news. Fauci serves more as a cautionary tale on the pandemic embrace of scientific leaders dictating public policy. While hardly alone in airing repeatedly, Fauci made himself the public face of a scientific technocracy that pushed top-down diktats and devastating lockdowns and access restrictions, almost none of which measurably improved public health. As Biden's advisor, he pushed unconstitutional mandates with little or no scientific foundation, leading the pushback against those who dared to question these eventually discredited policies. The past two years have provided us an object lesson on the failure of expert rule and why public policy should come from elected officials accountable to citizens. Let us remember Fauci by ensuring we never produce his like again. I'm Ed Morrissey. Thank you for watching and listening to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Be sure to subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to get alerted as soon as new episodes get published. You can support the Ed Morrissey Show and Hot Air's VIP reporting by becoming a VIP member, too. Visit hotairvip.com and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, all one word, for 40% off your membership. Choose VIP Gold and gain membership to access to all of the town hall sites. Thanks again for watching and listening.